If you have your bulletin, you can just follow there. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to start in Deuteronomy 31, and then we're going to do a chunk from uh, the very beginning of Joshua. If you went out of our building and you went um, down the hill to the Swamp Rabbit Trail and you went about two blocks on the Swamp Rabbit Trail, you would come to a plaque under uh, a railroad trestle. You may have seen this. It's a plaque commemorating something from Greenville's history. And it's from when uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt died. And when he died, he had a funeral train that carried his body from where he had passed away to his, uh, to his funeral plot. And there were stops along the way. And one of the stops where the train refueled and maybe got supplies was Greenville, South Carolina. And apparently the cities where these stops were made were informed of this. So when, uh, when FDR's funeral train stopped in Greenville, reports say between 15 and 20,000 people showed up. And I read an account of this where they talked to someone who was there and, and think about that. If it was 20,000, that would be roughly 50, 50 uh, of, of you, a group this size times 50. And that it was silent, except for the train just going and, and sniffles. And then the train departed. And that doesn't surprise me in a lot of ways. My dad grew up when FDR was president. And, you know, whether, whether you totally agreed with him or differed with him, he just had been such an iconic figure, especially because of his upfront role in World War II. And for, for those 15 to 20,000 Greenvillians that were gathered there, he had just been giant on the landscape of their lives, especially the younger ones, their upbringing. There were people there probably who had never known another president in their lives. Now, we are starting this book of Joshua, and I'm going to actually dip, like I said, back into the, the end of Deuteronomy. But think about this. The people who went into the promised land after Israel had been in the wilderness all those years, 40 years in the wilderness, the people who actually crossed the Jordan River, which we're going to study, and went in to take the promised land, except for just a couple of people, were not the ones who left Egypt. They had died along the way. But this is, this is a new generation of Israelites who are going in. They're really the children and the grandchildren, the ones who came out of Egypt, who are going in to take the promised land. And think about this. There are people there in their late 30s, and they've never known another leader besides Moses. I mean, this is FDR exponentially. He's led them through the wilderness. He's led them through great hardship. And all these things they've been promised that they haven't seen are about to come true. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I, and I've already said this. Before we, we read this, is just don't read this as like Sunday school story alone. Don't just read it as like Sunday school war. It's, it's real war. And... The successor to Moses that we're going to be studying, Joshua, he is on the edge of just a gigantic unknown. Now, you and I will probably never have a parallel experience like that and will never be the successor to somebody that's a major figure in the Bible. All right, granted. But we deal with this all the time. And, and it's not like being a Christian makes that go away. In fact, I, I would say it amplifies it because when you follow 
the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a sense where God is saying, all right, here's what I want you to do, or here's the next step I want you to take. And I'm not, I'm not telling you the 117th step. I'm telling you the next step to take. But you're trying to think about, all right, but what's the 10th step? And what's the 20th step? And just most of us are control freaks. And we don't like the unknown. I, in fact, really, you don't have to be a control freak to not like... I don't know anybody that doesn't like the unknown. This is extremely applicable to us. Here is a man facing a giant unknown, and the stakes are high. We're talking about either he himself will be killed or not. His relatives will be killed or not. His whole national identity will be killed or not. God will keep his promises or they won't. Now, on the, on the cusp of the unknown, what does the Lord give to Joshua for the unknown? Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. In verse 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Joshua, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand, Or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I know that you know this, but I'm, I'm going to belabor this point somewhat. 
in this first sermon on Joshua. I want you to think, as we're looking at this text, about how detached and removed war can be, at least aspects of war can be now. Now, that is not, 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 to downplay how real ground wars are and those who participate in those. And we even have some here who have participated in that. This just to say, we're talking about a time where there are no drones. There are no guns. War is up close and personal. Joshua is being told, you're going to go in and you're going to take the promised land. Now, if we're not careful, that can sound like, kind of like I'm stepping across this beautiful river and there's just this beautiful pasture land and you kind of like get a megaphone and go, okay, this tribe over there, this tribe over there, and it's not like that. You're going into an area that's occupied with cities and fortresses and cultures in place, and they don't want to leave. So here's what I want to look at this morning. On the cusp of crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land, what does Joshua know? Excuse me, what does he not know? And what does he know? Now, the first one's going to be quick, and we're going to spend some more time on the second. What does he not know, and what does he know? What Joshua does not know is virtually everything you'd want to know before you engage in a major military operation. He has access to virtually none of that information. He may have scouts at points. He may have men who can you know, go in and do what we would call recon, but he doesn't know about entire people groups that live there. He doesn't know what their troops are like. He doesn't know what their weapons are like. He doesn't know the topography. And if you read anything about military history, the way you do a war is affected by the geography. He doesn't know the topography of all the lands that he's going to go into. And again, no aircraft, no drones, no artillery, unless you consider archery, artillery, no phones, no walkie-talkies, no radio, no radar, no satellite. In other words, he knows, compared to what we could have access to in our day, virtually nothing that you'd want to know. I was reading something recently, and and I I heard this quote. I'd heard it once before by General George Patton. I can't quote it exactly because if you know anything about Patton's vocabulary, this is a, a sermon modified version. The following quote originally contained sharp language. But he, uh, General Patton said, no one ever won a war by dying for his country. He won a war by making the other guy die for his country. And that's very blunt and that's very true. The unknown that Joshua is about to step into, you know, is not just, will I be able to secure employment? And I'm not throwing that out as an example to diminish the stresses of unemployment. It's just to say, this is a matter of life and death. Will will I take him out with a sword or a spear, or will he take me out with a sword or a spear? Because it's going to be one or the other. There's so much he doesn't know. What does he know? He knows what he knows because God keeps telling him. And let's look at a few things. First off, and this is huge, he knows that God is still God. 
Look in verse 23 up at the top. And this is before they've... It's become official, before Joshua is known publicly as the leader. Verse 23. The Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. And then go down to the very bottom. Verse 9. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then look in verse 5. This this is sort of the, the doozy. He says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, first off, this is God saying that to him. This is not like one guy flippantly saying to another guy who's in a stressful situation, Hey, man, God's going to take care of you. All right, take care. Just, you know, kind of flippantly. This is the Lord saying to him over and over and over. Obviously, because, like, you need to hear this and believe me. I am going to be with you. And when he says, I'm going to be with you the way I was with Moses to Joshua, that must have been unnerving and wonderful. Because he had actually been with Moses when they saw the glory of God. He knew what it meant for God to be with Moses. The scriptures talk about the Lord would talk with Moses the way a friend talks to a friend face to face. It physically altered Moses. And this is the same God saying, I'm going to be with you. God is still God. Now here's the second thing. God's plan is still God's plan. God's plan is still God's plan. Even with all the unknowns. How how do you see that? Look uh, Look in verse 23 again. There's some important verbs that are showing up in this text. About halfway through verse 23, it says, You shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give to them. Look down in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Look up in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Now, God mentions Moses, but this goes back even to Joshua's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, to the book of Genesis first book of the Bible, where God says to Abraham, not on the basis of anything he's done, he says, look around you. Do you see all this land? The land of the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites. Do you see all that? I'm going to give it to you. And hundreds of years transpire. And maybe some people kept that in their memory through telling the stories and oral tradition and Moses writes it down. But whether they remembered or not or whether they believed it or not, God says... I have not forgotten what I said I would do. I swore it and I'll do it. I promised it and I'll keep it. At the beginning of this year, I asked my family to do a project, and I'd never, I'd never requested this before. I asked them, would you, would you talk amongst yourselves? So that's Dana and our three children. And I want you to tell me, what's the main thing you want me to work on about me? And I want one. I don't want a list, lest I be devastated. And so, and they took they took several weeks uh, with this, and uh, and so they came back. And here's, you know, it's humbling. 
I thought for sure it would be something like, you just, sometimes when you're, you, you know, you're just too severe about this, or you're anger about something, or you overreact. I, th- I thought for sure it would be something like that. Nope. It's not what it was. They said, you are not hitting your bench press numbers. I'm kidding. They said, just go in for shock effects if you're still listening. Mocking laughter from the front rows. They said, you don't follow through. You'll say, oh, I'll do that, I'll take care of that, or let, let me handle that, and then you, you don't do it. Ugh. True. And, I, and now I'm seeing it more. And I plan to work on that later. Uh, but I, I don't know if you saw the quote on the front of the bulletin that, that uh, this, this wonderful British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, that he said, and it's so beautiful. He, it, was, it, was in a, it was in another sermon about another text. He said, I love God's shalls. He said, you know, let a man tell you that he will do something, he shall do it. He may or may not, but when God says, I shall, he does. I love God's shalls. And man, you see that in this text. God is saying to Joshua, whether you feel it right now, whether you know it in detail, whether you wake up tomorrow and feel it, I shall. And look at this other term that she used, and it's so quick you can just fly past it. But look in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to what? Inherit the land. And you and I can kind of fly past that verb and not really think about it. The word inheritance is gigantic in the book of Joshua. If you get a Bible concordance where you can look up all the words that appear in the Bible, if you look up inheritance, Joshua just has hit, 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 just just tons of entries. The people go in and they get their inheritance. And here's the question. Do you inherit something because of what you did? Why do you inherit something? You inherit something because of what someone else did and your relationship to that person. And if I'm not mistaken, that's very theologically important. Because that already sounds like the gospel. Let me give to you what you did not earn. Let me give to you what you could not earn with your works because of what I did and your relationship to me. You're going to inherit the land. God is still God. God's plan is still God's plan. Now, so what am I supposed to do? Here's the third thing. And and God reminds Joshua of this. God's plan involves our action. It's not just us sitting back passively watching God's plan take place. God's plan involves our action. And you would think, given the circumstances, that the action would be, all right, so given what I've said, I'm still God, my plan is still my plan, so therefore you must amass weapons. Uh, The Israelite military must drill incessantly. You must do excellent recon. And God doesn't say to do any of those, although they may have done that. What does he say to do? I'm still God. My plan is still my plan. My plan involves your action. What's the action? Look in verse 8. This book of the law, he's meaning what Moses wrote down that God had revealed to him. What we call the first part of our Bible. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You cannot be, Joshua, someone who because of the urgency of battle, the urgency of warfare, kind of have to say, hey, look, in an ideal world, I could sit and I could study what Moses wrote down that God revealed to him, but, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. My hands are full. I'm a man of action. I'm a man of war. Maybe in peacetime, I can become the student of these words that I want to. God says, you must do the opposite of that. Under stress, in the unknown, in a military life, you must meditate on my word so that you can then do what? Again, get weapons, train. What, what does God keep saying to him? We've already read it like ten times. Verse 23. The Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. End of the passage. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. It would seem that God is saying, be strong and courageous. And he's saying it over and over and over. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for Joshua in his context? What does it mean for a godly person in our context? Does it mean that I sort of take on this bravado and I sort of act like nothing bothers me? But you know, the people that live with me can tell that it does. But I sort of pretend in front of religious people that nothing bothers me, even though I'm in knots inside. And that, that can't be what God means. Because it is frightening. What does it mean to be strong and courageous? Especially after he said, meditate on my word. Let's put it this way. It's as if God is saying, Joshua, rather than letting what you see trump what I've said, I want you for the rest of your life to let what I've said trump what you see. Let me say that again. Rather than let what you're seeing trump what I've said, I want you to let what I have said, you're going to have to go back and park in it and marinate in it till it gets in your heart. But let what I've said trump what you're seeing. Because you're going to see some horrible things. And you're going to see some scary things. I doubt that post-traumatic stress started like in the 1900s. These were human beings, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. And you're going to have some bad, you're going to have some setbacks. You're going to have some down days. There are going to be days where everybody's for you, and there are going to be days where they're not for you. I want you to let what I've said trump what you see. What does that look like? Now, this is, this is a very different example to use, but I, I came across this recently, and I thought, okay... That, that is someone being strong and courageous when there was so much they didn't know. There was a man named James Moffat. He's a missionary from Scotland to Africa in the late 1800s. And I've only seen one picture of him, but he looks like a wild man. You, know, you remember that picture of, a, who was it, Longfellow? In Dead Poet Society, when they look at the picture of the poet, 
And uh, Ethan Hawke's character says he looks like a sweaty-toothed madman. You remember that saying? That's what James Moffat looked like. Just this, I mean, this part looks Scottish, and this part looks like Unabomber or something. Just, just big beard and wild-eyed. And um, so he goes onto the African continent to serve and was in different locations because he was trying to reach people who were nomadic. And this is, I mean, this is old school missions. That There is no insurance. There is no telecommunication. There is no air conditioning. There is no ibuprofen. I mean, you, you just sort of put yourself out there and you immerse yourself into people with very few comforts. Well, after he'd been there several years, he married a woman named Mary. And one of their children said, physically, my dad and my mom were so different. My dad just had the, he just had the constitution of an ox, just strong, could just work you into the ground. And my mom was like, just, she was like a soft woman. She looked girly. She looked like a girl her whole life. He said, but once she thought something was her duty, get out of her way. James and Mary Moffat. James Moffat is trying to teach the gospel to this, this tribe, and they are completely uninterested. For years, they let him live with them. They're totally uninterested. She starts living there. She participates in the missions, and she finally sends a message to Sheffield, England, before anyone's become a Christian, and says, send us a communion set. Because her thinking was this. All right, look, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's what God says. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And James, you're giving them the word of Christ. And they're going to be new Christians. And when there's new Christians, they're going to need to have the Lord's Supper. And they ought to have a nice communion set. It took two years from the time she requested it for the communion set to get there. And it got there the Friday before the first time the 12 brand-new Christians ever had the Lord's Supper. That's being strong and courageous. Now, I know it's kind of a heroic example of it, but it's a woman who just, she doesn't know. But she says, to some degree, I'm going, to be a real, I'm going to be a realist, but I don't care what I see. He said what he said. And she acted on that. What does that mean for us? kind of draw this, draw this to a point. It, let me use one example. If there is something that is an unknown for us, generally, it's money. And when you look at lists of stressors, you know, whether you're single or whether you're married, money is just always at the top or almost at the top of those lists. Money is a stressor unless you're fabulously wealthy, and they worry about it too. What do you do with that? I mean, what, what, what do you do if, if you're sitting here right now and you're worried about money and you're thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not Joshua, and I'm not at that point in time. I'm not the successor to a major biblical figure. I'm just me, and I'm just trying to do the best I can. I want you to think about this. And I hope this is not a, a flippant way to put it, but how did the Israelites do once they got their inheritance? How did it go? Because it would, not, it would not be too inaccurate to say that the history of Israel, once they got their inheritance, they entered the promised land, it's like reading Runaway Bunny. 
You know the children's book, Runaway Bunny? Like the little bunny says, I'm going to run away. And the mother bunny says, well, if you run away, I will come after you. And then he'll say, well, well, I will be a ship and I will sail away. And she says, I will be the wind and I will blow the sails. You know, just it's, she's going to come after him. She's going to love him no matter where he runs away. And, you know, and now that's a sweet tale. That sounded kind of stilted. That is a sweet tale, but it is a sweet tale. You read the history of Israel, how does it go? Um, you know, my people whom I saved, my people whom I delivered out of slavery when they couldn't save themselves, my people, that I gave a land of milk and honey, an inheritance that you did not work for. Let's walk together in love. No. I'll run away. We'll run away. I'll send you prophets if you run away. We will kill them. I will send you priests. We will ignore them and corrupt them. I will send you kings. We will corrupt them and they will corrupt us. I will send you my son. My son will come into the promised land. We will kill him. So how's the story end? The son rises from the dead. By the way, he was dying to bear the punishment of their rebellion and ours. And he rises from the dead. And you know what he says right before he ascends back to his father? Behold, I am with you. To the very end of the age, I am still with you. In fact, I'll send my Holy Spirit in you. Not just beside you, in you, with you. The way you know that God is still God, the way you know that God's plan is still God's plan, and the way you have the strength and the courage to take the next step is to park yourself, we could say, to meditate on the Word and the Gospel. Do you know what the writer of the book of Hebrews says? We looked at Hebrews last week. In the last chapter of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says, Hey, don't fall in love with money. And be content with what you have because, and he quotes our passage, he says, because God will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's the exhortation. God is still God. And He decrees whatsoever comes to pass. God's plan, whether we agree with it or try to thwart it, God's plan remains God's plan. God's plan involves our action. But action is not, let me get control of the circumstances in my life. Let me understand my finances. Let me control my finances. Let me control my family. Let me control my loneliness. It is to know that God is God and I'm not and to remember the gospel and then act. That's what we need for the unknown because we'll have it until we cross into our promised land. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would 
uh, not only this morning, but in the weeks and months ahead. Take your precious word, even Old Testament accounts with names that we don't know and geography we don't know and genealogies and terms. Take your precious word and drive it into our hearts. And Father, we, we've confessed our sins, but we would say before you, having heard your word, we, we say that we trust you or say that it's good to trust you, but we don't want to trust you till we know what we want to know. And then when the unknown hits us, we doubt you. Please have mercy on us. Show us how you are God and we are not that your plans will stand, that your people will inherit what Christ inherits. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.